All right, 2 Samuel chapter 15. <coughs> it says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading into the city gate. Whenever anyone came to him with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from the, one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gathered strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerithites and Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us, when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed to the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever he seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. 
Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up to the, up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit, where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past. But wait, I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz of Zadok, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, thank you, good and faithful servant. Evening, everyone. Good to see you all again, and uh, as with Ian, I add my very warm welcome to you, especially if you're new or visiting. My name's Ben. I have the great uh, joy of uh, pastoring this congregation. Please do keep your Bibles open at uh, 2 Samuel 15. I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible, and you do so for our good. Pray that you'd help us to set aside any hindrances and distractions now, that we'd listen carefully to your word, and so that we'd be transformed more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was almost uh, certainly, if not certainly, on a Friday, the 3rd of April in the year 33 AD, uh, on a little hill just outside the northwestern uh, uh, edge of then Roman-occupied Jerusalem, that three men underwent the horrible form of execution known as crucifixion. The idea was that any non-Roman citizen uh, who had done, had been found guilty of some crime that was understood to be a challenge or an affront to the, uh, uh, the Romans uh, would suffer a long, very public, very painful, very humiliating death. Now, the three men crucified that day, the one in the centre was, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, whose opponents argued that he had claimed to be the king of the Jews and therefore might have been seen as someone likely to start an insurrection or a challenge to Caesar. So that's why he was uh, on the cross. We don't know the names of the other two victims, they've been lost to history, but we do know some of what they said. Uh, one of them joined in with the crowd in heaping abuse upon Jesus, which is pretty low when you're getting crucified next to the guy. But think of Jesus, right? Even the guy getting crucified, he's kind of like bagging me out, right? That's pretty bad. But the other one, as he looked at Jesus, said something so radically astounding, it almost defies belief. 
It's one of those things in the Bible where you read it and you think about it and you go, there is no way this has been made up. This actually had to have happened because no one would think to make up such a thing. He looked at Jesus and he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why on earth did that criminal think that a guy who's severely beaten and bloody and stark naked and humiliated and he's straining for breath and he's going to die very, very soon. Why did the criminal think that somehow that's the guy that he's yet to come into his kingdom, that he's yet to be enthroned as a king? You'd be hard-pressed to think of any situation in which one could be further from becoming a king. How did that criminal in that moment arrive at the astonishing conclusion that Jesus would one day come into his kingdom? Well, a significant part of the answer has to do with what God is going to teach us tonight from a series of events that took place around a thousand years before the time of Jesus, but that were written down ultimately for those who are now members of the kingdom that Jesus did most certainly come into and established. Uh, As we come to this next part of the story in 2 Samuel, we learn, first of all, of the betrayal of the great King David. Now, to refresh your memory, if you haven't been here the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've been going through God's Word in, in the book of 2 Samuel, and we've seen that on account of David's spectacular sins that strife and discord are starting to set in into his own family and are affecting his rule. Uh, David's eldest son, Amnon, uh, raped one of David's daughters, Tamar. It's a horrible chapter, chapter 13. And although David was furious about that, he didn't deliver justice. And another of David's sons, namely Absalom, eventually killed Amnon for vengeance Yes, but also, and more so, really to pave the way for Absalom to now have a shot at becoming the king after David. Now, last week, we saw a bit of a failed attempt to get David reconciled to his, his exiled son, Absalom. Uh, you might remember, if you hear last week, David got his, his right-hand man, well, David's right-hand man, Joab, tried to get David and Absalom on good terms, didn't really work. And now, as we've just uh, heard, as as Seth did a great reading of uh, chapter 15, we're going to see Absalom's true colours as he makes a play for his father's throne. And the first thing Absalom does is play the, uh, the flattering politician and he steals the hearts of the people of Israel. He gets an entourage of people and and a horse and a carriage, and he gets all his bling, basically, and he makes sure that he sort of intercepts anyone who's coming along to David to get some sort of ruling from David. And then he flatters those people uh, by saying, verse 3, Absalom would uh, would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. But he'd also slightly disappoint them by saying, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And then just at the right moment, when he'd made them feel good, though mildly disappointed, verse 4, Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case uh, could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Hint, hint, a little bit like, unlike King David, who sort of isn't seeing 
that they receive justice. Now, he doesn't say, if only I was king, because that would be a little bit too obvious, but he, he does say enough to put the idea in people's heads that he really should be in a higher position, and he does so in a way that kind of implies that David is maybe letting Israel down by not seeing that justice is served, which incidentally actually has a bit of truth to it. And then to make sure that that seed is firmly implanted, he seals the betrayal with a kiss. It's not very original. Verse 5, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now, we probably think that's weird, but for Jewish people, that's, that, that would, he would have been a really nice guy to do that. That, 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 that. You'd go away thinking that's wonderful. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And we think, no, isn't that nice? He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Uh, quick side note that's worth mentioning... Uh, if a leader, and especially a Christian leader who handles the Word of God, only ever always seems to make you feel really good and never has any kind of challenge or difficulty, you might need to be a little bit worried about that. And I recognise the, the weird irony that I'm a Christian leader teaching the Word and I kind of want you to think that what I say is good. But if you only ever hear sugar-coated preaching, you've got to worry, is this person in it for the truth or are they in it for the popularity. Anyway, with his popularity now in place, Absalom begins his plot of betrayal with a brilliantly crafted lie. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow, if the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And so, verse 9, the king said to him, rather ironically, go in peace. And so, he went to Hebron. Now, like all good lies, this one has many elements of truth. You know that to tell a really good lie, you've got to have lots of truth, right? Absalom was in Geshur and in exile and therefore probably wanted to get out. He might have even made a vow to the Lord about getting out. And it so happens also that Absalom was born in Hebron. So Hebron's probably a pretty significant place for him. It it's kind of sounds legit that that's the kind of place that you'd say, God, if, if you get me out of this calamity, I'll worship you in, in that significant place in, in Hebron. But you and I know as we read this already that really what he's saying is a big fat lie. You only have to remember back two weeks to chapter 13... Absalom had done this tactic before and it was a lie. He'd said to David, hey, uh, King David, I'm uh, throwing a party for a bunch of sheep shearers. Would you please come? And he knew that David wouldn't come, but that was deliberate. He asked him first so that then he could say to him, well, if you're not going to come, who can you send? Amnon, that'd be nice. Can you send Amnon? And David, all right, have Amnon at your party. But of course, it wasn't a party. It was an excuse for Absalom to get in the same room as Amnon and make sure that he got murdered. And here he's doing the same tactic again. So now, as Absalom heads off to Hebron, which, by the way, is not only the city that he was born in, but it also happens to be the city in which King David was first proclaimed king, Absalom gets an innocent renter crowd to come with him. 
and a whole bunch of followers to whom he says, when I give the signal, basically a load of trumpets, you guys start shouting everywhere that I'm the king and that's what happens. And to really seal the deal, verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, uh, the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Uh, we're going to learn not long from this uh, part of the Bible that Ahithophel is not only an excellent advisor, but that it's likely that he was Bathsheba's grandfather. Now, in other words, he's probably harbouring a bit of a grudge against David anyway, given what David did to his granddaughter and his used-to-be son-in-law, namely saw him killed, Uriah. And so I reckon that's why Absalom's got this particular counsellor uh, to, to jump ship. And I reckon he would have been only too happy to do it. I reckon Ahithophel is like, well, I'm all too happy to get off Team David and to get on Team Absalom. And with that, Absalom's coup is set in motion, the betrayal is begun, and he's such a legitimate threat that David knows immediately that he's got to run. And so the next thing we see after the betrayal of the king is the departure of the king. David is convinced, and I think for good reason, that Absalom would probably kill his own father in order to become king. I mean, that's the sense we get from the next few words. Uh, verse 13, it right, says this, A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And yes, that means to death, to, to kill them. Given what Absalom has done so far, I reckon David's probably right. His officials tell him, well, we're ready to do whatever you choose for us to do. And so David leaves his palace and leaves his city. And throughout the chapter, and I wonder if you heard it as Seth sort of read through, there's lots to emphasise how, how sad and how humiliating uh, this was. Uh, when you remember that not that long ago, David came into Jerusalem and he came in as a conquering king. The people at, in Jerusalem thought there's no way he's going to take us down and bang, he takes them down and then he solidifies his kingship and it says he was established as king over all Israel. And when you've got that in the back of your mind... It helps you appreciate just how difficult it must have been for him now to pause at the, the city limits of Jerusalem and verse 18 to watch as all his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites and the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath who marched before the king. And then to add to the sadness, verse 23, in case you haven't got enough already, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. And then there's more, the sadness gets compounded when we realise that for David, there's even an element of symbolically being parted from the presence of God. Uh, and also of David kind of putting his life into the hands of God. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant, that special box, that's the thing that represents God's presence among his people. And we read in verse 25, the king, that's David, said to Zadok, one of the priests, take the ark of God back into the city. 
And if I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And so David's departure involves the symbolic leaving of God's presence and committing his life solely into the hands of God. And if we're thinking at this point that God has so ordained these events and, and these words uh, to, to help us anticipate what Jesus would later endure, well, then I think we're on the money. That's absolutely right. I mean, in fact, in verse 30, verse 30 of our passage, David, we're told, continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And yes, that's the same Mount of Olives that Jesus went to in sorrow and anguish on account of the fact that the wheels for his demise had, had recently been set in motion. Jesus would put his life in the hands of his heavenly Father. And in his case, he would find himself forsaken by God. And uh, in case you didn't know this, he would do that to pay for the sin in your heart and mine, uh, the sin that makes you and I every bit as guilty as David and, and as Absalom. But apart from the sadness that you sort of see as we go through, there's something else that the writer really wants to highlight for us during this, uh, this episode. Put simply, it's that even foreigners who do not have any significant attachment to Israel's king, end up following David, even as he leaves behind his place of power and authority. Now, we see this in the little incident involving a guy who I think has one of the coolest names in all the Bible, Ittai the Gittite. I said when I preached this this morning that a direct application from the Word of God for all of you is that we need some people to start a punk rock band just so they can name it Ittai the Gittite. I'll be very pleased if you do that. And also to give you insight into the juvenile mind of Ben, I can't help but thinking that when this guy was a little kid and he did something naughty and his mum got angry at him, she called him It the Git. <laughs> and once you think it, you can't unthink it. Anyway... Verse 19, here's how that little exchange goes. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. Now, basically, Ittai is the leader and, and therefore the representative of a bunch of foreigners who probably served as part of David's royal palace guard, possibly because as foreigners, they wouldn't have had much stake in the politics of Israel. They were under no obligation to serve a king being dethroned by going into exile with him. And so David's basically saying to them, hey, fellas, no hard feelings from me if you guys want to do what you've always been doing and just serve the next guy, go for it. How does Ittai, on behalf of the Gittites, respond? Well, verse 21, but Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Hence, verse 22, David said to Ittai, go ahead, March on. 
Now, if you happen to be familiar with uh, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, beautiful book, worth a read, you might notice the way that Ittai sticks with David as David endures hardship sounds really similar to the way that, that Ruth stuck with Naomi as she endured her literal bitterness. Because Naomi knew the God of Israel, things ended up turning out really good for Ruth. I've just spoiled the whole book of Ruth for you, but read it anyway. But in the same way, we'll soon find out that things will turn out really good for the Gittites because David actually has a very good hunch that he will return to power, so much so that he's actually been planning for the time that that happens. We saw it as early as verse 16 where it says David left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. And uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, that becomes uh, something Absalom was going to use against him next week. It's kind of gross, but yeah, whoever's going to preach that next week, sorry. But more than that, David organises for a number of informants to feign loyalty to Absalom whilst all the while working for him. Those informers include the priests the people responsible for handling the, the Ark of the Covenant and therefore those you might even associate with kind of upholding the will of God. And so we see at verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? He just told him to go back, but he wants to, to tell him why. Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahamaz with you and also Abiathar's son, Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Translation, you guys are my spies. Another of David's informants uh, who will feign loyalty to Absalom will also be charged with the task of frustrating Absalom's new advisor, Ahithophel. Uh, his name was Hushai and David said to him... Return, Hushai, return to the city and say to Absalom, Your Majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. And then, says David, you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. And another spoiler alert, this guy does a really amazing job of it. There's another a couple of chapters time, right? Ahithophel gives this answer to what... Uh, uh, um, Absalom should do and you're like how's he going to get around that but he gets around it so brilliantly anyway I'm just excited keep reading the book of 2 Samuel anyway you put this all together you see that well David has left a bunch of concubines to look after his palace he has left the ark of the covenant in Jerusalem to which he hopes to return he has sent informants and put them in place to keep him up to date on what's going on and he's infiltrated Absalom's ranks with the purpose of seeing him fail. See, although David departs humiliated and putting himself into the hand, himself into the hand of God, he yet suspects quite strongly that he will return in power. I always wonder whether David knew what Hannah had prophesied all the way back at the beginning of one summer. You remember that, the lady Hannah, who didn't have the kid and then she had the kid and she said this prayer and it became prophetic? I'll put up the words. In the beginning of one Samuel, Hannah said, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, that is the power of his 
anointed. And perhaps even more strikingly, that's the kind of thing that the criminal on the cross knew as he looked at God's perfectly innocent servant, Jesus, the descendant of David, and reasoned that somehow God must confirm him as the one chosen to rule over God's kingdom. He must, to use the language of of the prophet in, in 1 Samuel, he must give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But back to the story at hand. How on earth should David's betrayal, departure and plan for return impact us here and now on this side of the cross in in, in the kingdom of Jesus. This actually took me quite a while to work out this week. It was hard for me to break this one. You see, it's true that Absalom and David are pretty much as sinful as each other. Don't forget the reason all this calamity is coming upon David is because of what he's he's got the murder and the adultery and the cover-up with Bathsheba and Uriah, right? They're both as sinful as each other. But it's when you look at the difference to how each of them approaches power how each of them approaches power, that you start to see the vital lesson that I think 2 Samuel 15 is teaching us who are in Christ. You see, Absalom is clearly and conspicuously grasping at power, whereas David is not. He sits loose to it, he he lets it go. Absalom, in all likelihood, would kill his father in order to become powerful. David, flawed as he is, He's not so tied to his position that he couldn't leave and that he couldn't place himself into the hands of God. You'd think that someone in David's position would really want to have that Ark of the Covenant of God with them. I'm the one that's got God on my side. Look at me, you can't beat me and we got the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to smash you. But he doesn't. David is still the man chosen according to God's own heart and he's as quick to give up his place of authority as Absalom is to run in and grab it. As a matter of fact, the last verse, it's so telling when uh, Hushai enters the city, he's just in time because Absalom's already rocking up. It's in the way that David prefigures God's ultimate chosen king, Jesus, Uh, that we get a lot of the the clout from this passage. Absalom would kill in order to grasp at what he thought was his rightful place. Jesus would, of course, give up his rightful place in order to be killed. What was true of David in a small way that we see here is, of course, uh, as someone in my growth group very helpfully said this week, a prequel to what we see in Jesus. We're seeing here that God's anointed king does not grasp at power. Rather, he entrusts himself to God, who we'd learned at the beginning of 1 Samuel, brings down the proud but lifts up the humble. And so I think it's right to say that as it was with David, and as we know it certainly is with Jesus, well, so it ought to be with us. It's those who humble themselves uh, that God will lift up. We kind of follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The king we now follow would not grasp onto power, but would entrust himself to God, even when it included death and God-forsakenness. And now in his case, he's been vindicated, he's been raised up, given the name that is above every name, such that it's only a matter of time, might be even very short time, till everyone, every knee on heaven and earth will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen. 
But in the meantime, we have the immense privilege of following in his footsteps and we are therefore right to practice, to make a practice of humility, to cultivate humility, knowing that God will lift us up in due time. And uh, if I ever get to give one lesson on humility, I take the opportunity to uh, quote what I think are fairly well-known words of C.S. Lewis, who I think so brilliantly nails it in one little quote. Uh, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's not making you into a doormat, it's thinking of yourself less, it's being less preoccupied with yourself, being able to think more about others. The more you realise that God is sort of into doing what's necessary and sufficient for you, the less you need to look to yourself and your own resources and abilities. A really good way to train in humility is to keep thinking about what it meant for Jesus to serve you. I know that we're called servants of Jesus and that's wonderful and right and we are, but we are far more served by him than we are servants of him, right? Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I like to, to sort of contemplate how it felt for Jesus to become incarnate, to live in obedience, to die a criminal's death on that cross and to do so in the full knowledge, even the joy, that he'd be calling you and me personally into that kingdom that he inaugurated on that day. Uh, By the way, if it happens to be the case that you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, first of all, good on you for being here, I really rate that. But if you're not yet a Christian, one of the biggest barriers to becoming a Christian is not a lack of information. You stick around this church three or four weeks, you'll have heard more than enough to become a follower of Jesus, right? We're a Bible teaching church. Lack of information is not, not the thing that stops you coming to Christ. The, the real problem is there's basically no way of coming into God's kingdom, for most people at least, without taking a serious hit to the pride. There's kind of no easy way around this. You need to realise that Jesus so graciously and so deeply meets your need of forgiveness and being reconciled to God. And he does that so comprehensively that in order to embrace that, you have to lose your sense of self-sufficiency. It's kind of impossible not to. I remember going through this myself. I was 19 when I became a follower of Jesus and I knew that saying yes to God must mean admitting that I've been wrong for a long time. I knew that saying yes to God would mean that my non-Christian family would think rather poorly of me. My non-Christian friends would think I'd lost the plot. There's kind of no easy way around that though. You've actually got to take a hit to the pride in order to come into the kingdom of God. But you know, if ever there's been a case of no pain, no gain, well, this would be the one. It would be humbly turning back to God and making Jesus Christ your own Lord and Saviour. Do it today because tomorrow could easily be too late. But for the rest of us, finally, one of the verses in today's passage that I think we'd be right to kind of lift out of the, New T- the Old Testament and basically directly to apply to us in Christ, and that's rare but it does happen, right? I think we got one today, 
where you can just sort of apply it directly in Christ, is verse 15. It's where the kings, that is David's officials, answered David as he's getting rejected. Your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the King chooses. I think it's absolutely right that we could say this of Jesus and and we'd be right to apply it like that. With David, the past experience of his officials, well, it had taught them that this is a king worth following. They had been blessed under the leadership of David, flawed though it certainly was. And so even though he's going to go where the going is going to get really rough, well, they reasoned that it made sense to continue to trust him and to serve him. Well, how much more for we who worship the perfectly sinless, perfectly loving and perfectly understanding King Jesus, who has the power to raise us to new life, which he will, and who, even though he now sits enthroned in heaven with all power and authority, yet suffers with us in our times of hardship. Now, if you do happen right at this point, right now, to be going through significant hardship, which there could be someone here who is, then you have my blessing and, frankly, my encouragement to apply a pretty big filter to what it is I'm about to say. Uh, There are things from the Word of God that, whilst absolutely true are not necessarily always helpful uh, for someone who's right in the thick of hardship. Uh, And also remember, I'm not speaking to individuals, I'm speaking generally to to a whole bunch of people. With those qualifications, I, I say in all confidence that Jesus never promises that his followers won't face extreme hardship. Jesus never promises that there won't be suffering for his followers. As a matter of fact, for most Christians, it's normal to suffer in all sorts of ways as we follow the man of sorrows who was familiar with suffering. But it's equally true that Jesus is no less close to us as we suffer and that whilst part of what makes suffering bad a lot of the time is the fact that we won't know the reason for it, it remains that we do know the God who knows the reason for it. That's one of the worst things about suffering is often can can happen and will happen without us knowing the reason. But we can know the God who knows the reason. And we're right to hold firm to Christ. We are right, like those servants of David, to say, wherever you choose, we're going to go. We are right to remain obedient to him, to serve him, even where the places he chooses for us to go involve great hardship and great suffering and great difficulty. Jesus, to put it simply, does not have fair-weather friends. That's a really good thing, because those who follow him through thick and thin are those who, albeit in the future, will celebrate that they did, will rejoice that they stuck with Jesus even through terrible hardship. For they will be vindicated, just as he has been. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we learn about him through the experience of David, who had people that would follow him and be where he is no matter what. We thank you that we have a king who would not grasp power, but made himself a slave to death and even death on a cross to benefit us. 
and that therefore you exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And so we pray for those who are yet to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Father, please, by the power of your spirit at work in them, give them your mercy, enable them to turn in repentance, to see the truth and to come humbly into the kingdom of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.